Okay, why don't we, as our custom, stand and read the Word of God. Revelation chapter 1. Beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from even the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it, so it, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome back to our sermon series in Revelation. Before we begin today, let me remind you of what we spoke about two weeks ago, um, because it's important to kind of get our grips again of where we are. But the first sermon I did in the intro was really um, not to introduce you to the themes of the, of the uh, books per se and some of the details, but more to give you guiding principles, guiding principles so as to interpret the book properly. And this is much needed because Revelation has led to all sorts of various interpretations, some which are close to the original meaning that John would have intended, and some are so far off, I mean, it might as well be a Hollywood movie. But in summary, I gave you four points to remember in studying this book. Number one, genre. You have to know the genre to understand how to interpret it. We talked about it being a letter. We talked about it being a prophecy. But we focus mostly on it being an apocalypse. Now, apocalyptic literature um, has certain uh, features. But it, it uses colorful images, symbols, and metaphors to convey spiritual truths. But the key, what we, we feel remember, was that these images were not meant to be interpreted literally unless the book tells you to. The only thing to be taken literally is the spiritual truth the symbol is trying to convey. And that, that's the difficult part, isn't it, in the book? And I even, in my own studies, still have a difficult time understanding what spiritual truth am I to grasp from what he's saying. The second thing we talked about is his use of numbers. This fits into the genre. But in the Jewish faith, numbers meant something. And they carried meaning in light of the Old Testament significance and usage. And so we talked about, you know, a various amount of numbers and their multiples and how that fit into the book. We also talked about the use of the Old Testament. This was an incredible uh, learning thing for me. But there's about 400 verses in Revelation and 280, I'm just rounding, 280 of these verses are direct allusions or quotes from the Old Testament. So that means 70% of this letter is, is referring to the Old Testament. And fourth, I reminded you that this Revelation is not a chronological timeline. 
So when you read, this happened, then this happened, this happened, don't think linearly. He's repeating often the same visions, but just trying to convey different spiritual truths in them. And so we found ourselves more than once, for example, at the second coming of Jesus and the time of the judgment of the nations. It happens on repeated occasions in the book. So it can't be, some parts can be linear, but not the whole thing is not meant to be linear. This is really, really important when trying to make sense of this text. Well, today we're going to look at more specific details of the letter and kind of answer the typical reporter's thing, like the, or your school report in high school, the five W's, the who, what, where, when, and how, and why, those types of things. We're going to look at those things today. So who wrote it? Well, in chapter one, the author identifies himself three times as a man by the name of John. Look at verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservant, that should soon take place. And he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John. In verse four, we see him say it again, John to the seven churches. And in verse nine, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. So John clearly is the author. The problem is church, there's no other identifying markers as to which John this is in the entire letter. He doesn't say, I, John, the apostle, he just says, I, John. Now, there's much to debate, much debate as to who this John really is, uh, because there's more than one John listed in the New Testament, and apparently uh, John was a, a popular name amongst the Jewish people and early Christians in the first century. But probably the overwhelmingly, as I read and studied and kind of did my own work on this, probably the most popular thought of who this is was John the disciple. Jesus is disciple, one of the apostles, John, son of Zebedee. And uh, one of the biggest reasons like, I would subscribe to this is because the early church fathers who wrote in around 150 AD to 200 AD, which is not much removed from here, attribute revelation to him. So in terms of like being close to the timeline, these early church fathers like sort of succeeded or like the apostles. And so I would just sort of trust their writings for this. But there are a couple of markers in here that are important, I think we should point out about John. Even though we still can't say for sure it's the disciple, there's other important markers. Notice in verse 1, he calls himself a bondservant. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants. Um, or, and then he calls himself later a bondservant at the end of verse 1. So he's a bondservant in his own mind, who's written a letter to give to bondservants. Bondservants just in our language, it's slave. So here's a guy who sees himself as a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, if you think of what a slave is, slave has no rights. Or if they have rights, they're determined by the master. So John sees himself as indebted to enslaved by Jesus Christ. May that be said of us as well, as we seek to live out our lives in this community and in our families. But I think one of the most important things here as well is in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Well, that's important <clears throat> because we're going to find out later in chapters 2 and 3 when we get there, that well, actually we'll find out today too, but in more, more detail later, that these churches he's writing to are suffering. They're being persecuted for the name of Christ. And John says, I, your brother, like not biological brother, but your spiritual brother, I'm in the same boat as you. 
I write to you as someone in the same boat as you. I also am suffering and persevering for the sake of Christ. And he defines it. He goes, I'm on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. <laughs> so we're going to show you a map here in a second. But Patmos is just um, a little tiny island in the Mediterranean. And so it's, cl- it's pretty close to the shores, but whether you're a kilometer away or 10 miles away, what difference does it make in, in kind of seas like that? But he's been exiled. He's been exiled by the Roman colony to a Roman island because of his testimony. So what we learn about him is this. If you are being exiled, that means that he must have had a public ministry. He must have been proclaiming Jesus on a, to the point that the Romans knew about it, right? If, 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 he, if he wasn't, he would never have been exiled. So clearly he's a man who's sharing his faith, who's, who's out there uh, proclaiming Jesus. And the Roman authorities hear about this and want rid of him. And they put him on this island to be exiled alone. Now, don't think of Castaway. Don't think Tom Hanks. He's not talking to like a, a basketball and trying to make sense of his life. The guy's in full faculties. And in, in, the, in Patmos was a, had a populated, was a populated island. If you do the research, it wasn't like he was banished like by himself in isolation. But he was isolated, at least we know, from the Christian community, which would be a heartbreaking in and of itself. The last thing I'd ever want to be is separated from you guys. But again, I think it's important here because all he had to do, all he had to do to get off the island was deny Jesus Christ. He's there for the testimony of Jesus, he says, all he has, and for the word of God. He denies those things. He's a free man. He goes back to emperor worship or you know, obeying the, the, the rules and the lands of the state in Rome. He's free. But he won't do it for the sake of Christ. So who was it written to? Well, in verse 11, we see this. The Spirit says to him, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Let me show you on a map of where this is located. So if you were to go to modern-day Turkey, you would find um, these cities. And this is, uh, it was called Asia back then, so don't think China. Like this was Asia, it was called Turkey in biblical times. And so you can see... A, uh, a, those uh, stars with the red circles around them. There's seven churches sort of forming a, a, a route that looks like a circle. Now, if you look directly to the bottom left, you'll see something in red called Patmos. It's really small, but it's, uh, it's on your bottom left-hand corner within that circle. So anyway, you get an idea of where they're located. They're, I think it's about a 200 or 300 kilometer radius to do that whole circuit. So it's not a, not a huge distance, but it's a decent distance by foot. But, uh, you know, it's about maybe um, 200 clicks is about from here to Red Deer in terms of its, like, radius. Uh, you know, so it gives you an idea. Now, we're going to get into these churches later in chapters 2 and 3. But for now, the key is to remember how they're defined in verse 9 as well. John says, I, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. So these churches are, are in the same boat as John now. <laughs> They are also suffering for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. And we know that, of course, Rome is in power, and they are the, the, um, the empire that's putting them under this 
this uh, severe treatment. Let me just show you a couple examples of this in chapter 2 and verse 9. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 9. Here's the church in Smyrna, and here's what John says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So again, Smyrna is a church in which um, they're already going through stuff. I know of your tribulation, but he says there's more to come. There's more to come. Uh, check out also uh, Pergamum in 2.13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So again, I know what you have been through, and I know that this fellow was martyred within your church community. So this is what's going on to some degree, and John is saying it's going to, it's, it's come and it's going to increase. So be prepared. But we also know that there was some economic sanctions as well economic sanctions against the Christians. And in Revelation chapter 13 and 17, when he's describing the mark of the beast, he says they weren't able to buy and sell. So these, these Christians in Revelation were already going economic sanctions, and so they weren't allowed to participate in the Roman Empire to the same degree as others because they wouldn't do what was required to be part of their um, economic system. And I'm going to get into this, like what's the historical cultural context about you know this, but let me give you one hint. Unlike our society, which religion is divorced from government, theirs was intertwined. In fact, you'd even get positions. In government positions, you were hired to carry out religious like duties. So again, if you didn't sort of uh, bow your knee or didn't become loyal to the Roman Empire or to Caesar in power, you would be economically punished for not doing so. And again, that's couple months down the road. Well, maybe not that long, a couple weeks, but we're, we'll get to that later on. So that's the persecution they're going through. That's the persecution John's going through. So when was it written? Well, two dates, two dates are suggested, and they kind of fall between 69 AD and 96 AD. So just reverse the numbers. Those who hold to the 69 AD the early date, say so because Nero, Emperor Nero, had just been in power, and he had just committed suicide in, to end his reign in AD 68. So Nero commits suicide in 68. It leads to civil wars, and it's crazy I, I, uh, in, in Rome at that time. Civil unrest, civil wars, and they go through four emperors in two years as they're killing each other and trying to get power. So some of these emperors ruled for 15, 20 years. They go through four and two. So it's civil unrest, civil war, emperors fighting. And so it's a time of uh, tribulation in Rome and time of turmoil. And so Revelation is written like a book of turmoil and tribulation. And so people think it's around the Nero's time. But more significant is the temple hasn't been destroyed yet. If those of you who know your history, church history, the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70 under Titus. So the temple is still in, its, in existence, and so it sits um, in Jerusalem at this date. 
The second suggestion is at the end of the 90s, somewhere around 90, 92, whatever, 94, 96, in that sort of time frame. And this was during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. He reigned between 81 and 96. Now, many believe there's internal evidence in Revelation and external to point it to a later date of Domitian. And personally, I'd love to go for coffee and talk to you about it, but I hold to the later date. If you want to know why, I'm happy to share. But you could really spend your whole uh, PhD. You, could do, you actually could do a PhD on this subject matter. It's just so extensive. But I'm going to preach to you as if it's under Domitian's reign, but I don't think it'll actually make too much difference in terms of the actual lessons that come out of the text. All right. So why was it written? Now, we're going to get to the themes of Revelation here in a second. But before I do, I want to introduce you to some different ways believers in the world and church generations have sought to interpret this book. Because how you view these interpretations impacts how you, what spiritual truths you think you can take away from here. Now, I'm going to introduce you to a bunch of fancy words. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to actually scare you or intimidate you or make you feel overwhelmed. So I'm going to give them to you and make them very simplistic, hopefully, but I can share them again with you over coffee if you want to know more about them. But the first view is a preterist view, a preterist view of Revelation. So what that means is that all events recorded in Revelation took place in the past. So in other words, Revelation places all of its events contemporary to the writer of John. So everything took place in the first century. So a common view then is Revelation is about the fall of Jerusalem to come in AD 70 and has nothing much more, um, it actually has all to do with the church's conflict with Rome. So they don't think there's anything for the future. Everything was fulfilled in the first century. That's a preterist view of Revelation. A historicist view thinks that the visions and events in Revelation represent different time periods in church history. In other words, the visions are directly tied to the world's events that have occurred throughout history. So a very typical view then is that the seven churches mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 represent seven consecutive stages in church history. So, for, so if I come to something like the visions then, oh, this, mean, this is the rise of Islam. Or over here, this is the rise of the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church. And so, we, they, they, and so you, and the, the problem with this little church is that you often, uh, you squash all of your history into Revelation. So if you're born in 1500 AD, you interpret the entire book through that, that, that from the time of Pentecost, like Jesus' like the coming of the Spirit, to your time in 1500. So everything has to get squashed in your history. If you live in 2000, because nothing's been fulfilled, you now have to take all the events, like the rise of the UN, you know, and uh, things that are going on right now in the world, you know, and we say, okay, this must represent this in Revelation. The problem is, again, no one's ever got it right in the historical view. The futurist view. This is what I used to believe until a year ago. And this is what 90% of the people I hear on, actually 100% of the people I hear on radio, with the exception of Hank Hanegraaff, uh, this is what people believe, who are the predominant teachers on 1140 radio and stuff, believe in the futurist view. And that is that uh, Revelation, with the exception of chapters 2 and 3, which was written to the first century church, is a prediction of events that are yet to take place in the future. So from chapter 4 on, Revelation is a crystal ball. 
And you and I are living in that generation waiting for it to be fulfilled. And so you hear words like rapture, seven-year tribulation, rise of the Antichrist, nations gather together to make war in Jerusalem, Jesus defeats the nations at the second coming, a thousand-year reign, Satan is bound, Satan is released, and things like that. This is, this is my old view. This is uh, very typical of the North American Western view of Revelation. People who hold a futuristic view take a very literal reading of Revelation. It's very literal. And so that's where they get those views from. Idealist, this is the last one, doesn't tie the events of Revelation to either historic or future events, but rather to spiritual truths. So it searches for spiritual meaning that the author intends to convey in the symbolism. So where do we land, or where do I land? <laughs> I'm going to try to convince you to land with adopting from all of them. I don't think any of them are right, or any of them are, are actually wrong in terms of everything they have to offer. I think it's wise to borrow from all four. All have value, and it's up to us to use our heads in terms of how we're trying to interpret through these lenses. And again, so I think they all have something to offer, but we have to be careful when we apply them. And so I will be accountable to you, and you'll be accountable to me in the way we interpret this book. But Beale says something really important, one of my favorite commentators, because, again, with being Western, we come from a very futuristic point of view to Revelation. But here's what Beale says. The message of Revelation does not merely concern the unfolding of future events, but uses present events, understood in a symbolic manner, to speak to both a warning and an encouragement to persevere in their commitment to Christ and to divorce themselves from any allegiance to the world system, which expresses the rule of the kingdom of darkness. The visions of chapters 4 through 21 are about the present, not just the future. That's not something, church, I believed until about a year ago. But as we walk through the, hopefully last year, week, two weeks ago, sermon on the guiding principles will help you shape why I've changed my personal view on this. I will say one more thing, though. You can exist in this church and hold to these same, the futuristic view or prejudice view or whatever. It won't change our relationship because God determines how we love one another as a measure of Christianity. And lots of biblically strong love, Jesus lovers have held all sorts of different views and I believe we're all going to be in the kingdom. At the same time, though, I am responsible for teaching the word of God, and I have to bring the goods. And so um, it won't impact our relationship, but I'm still going to land, and uh, I have to land. I mean, just like you have to land as well. So let's get into the meat now. What is this book about? First of all, it's a call to God's people for perseverance in the midst of suffering. My teacher said to me in Revelation, when I went to, when I went to Region last year, he goes, uh, you need to write a paper about what the Revelation's about. It has to be a thousand words, very concise. What's it about? I went through the book and looked for recurring themes. I found this many references, 20 references to suffering and overcoming in the book of Revelation. There's 22 chapters. Over and over, persevere, persevere, overcome, persevere, overcome, over and over and over again. It's a call to God's people to persevere because we, um, we're, in a, we're, we're in it, church. 
And so, again, this is extremely important because there's always this, these uh, systems and people and, and spiritual forces pulling on our hearts, pulling on our minds to want to just give in and pack it in. I'll be the first to admit in the last two years, there's been moments where I've wanted to pack it in. And I've talked to many of you through phone calls and conversations, and you also want to pack it in. And so we seek to encourage one another, say, no, you know what? Like, you know, Tim, don't give in, man. Or Pat, like, just let's keep pushing. Let's keep persevering. And so we encourage one another. Again, a call for perseverance. But here's why it's a call to perseverance. Lesson number two. Those who choose to follow Jesus will automatically find themselves engaged in holy war. If you choose to follow Jesus, you engage yourself in holy war. In the physical realm, we see this in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. It's interesting when he describes the beast and all the, all the you know, those who worship the beast. The beast there is Rome. The beast is the Roman Empire and all that it offers. So there's a physical reality. So when I'm engaging in holy war, what's interesting is who put John on, in, on the island of Patmos? Who's going to put, um, you know, that church in Smyrna in jail? It's going to be the Roman officials, the kings, the, the, the emperors, like the, 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 the local magistrates and politicians who hold authority. It's going to be them. So there's a physical reality in the holy war. But you know what's really crazy, church? Is actually John in, in, in Revelation actually attributes it to the spiritual realm. He actually says, you know, you're engaged in a holy war in the spiritual realm, and your adversary is the devil. Your adversary is the devil. Look at me in chapter 2, verse 9. Look, look at to the words now. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not for a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. What? The devil's going to do it? I thought it was going to be Domitian or Nero or, you know, or Augustus. No, it's the devil, according to John. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Again, where's Satan living? Not in some locked up corner. According to, to John, he's right there in the midst. How about 3.9? 3.9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Again, we see this idea of the synagogue of Satan. So again, it's really important because the church in the first century is actually persecuted by Roman people, human enemies, but he describes them as being in a battle against the devil. So it's really unique here because he's up against the spiritual forces of this world. And if we choose to follow the Lamb, we are engaged automatically in holy war against Satan and his realm. And that's Ephesians 6, isn't it? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities and the rulers of this world. But this battle is unique, church. 
It's really unique. It's not a battle over extending our geographical borders, like in lots of wars. We're not trying to make Okotoks bigger. <laughs> it's not about how much money we can have. The battle is not about who can get richer. The battle's over the right to be worshipped. The battle is over the right to be worshipped. I want you to turn with me to chapter 13 and verse 3. Two choices of worship. We're going to start with the Roman Empire. Look at 13.3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war against him? Let's not get into the technological, like all the technological words of who this is and what this is. I'm going to get into that. Just think symbolic, though. Don't think literal. <laughs> okay, it's a right to be worshipped. The issue is worship. Where's our allegiance lying? Now, look at me in chapter 4 and verse 9. On the, that's the devil on his side flip, crying out for worship and his armies and his allegiance. Now let's look at 4.9. And the living creatures were given glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you were created all things and because you were, your will they will existed and were created. Because of your will they will exist and created. So again, it's an issue of worship and revelation. You will find this over and over and over again. You follow the Lamb, it's a call to worship Him. You don't follow the Lamb, it's a call to worship everything that He is not, which is ultimately Satan and the world around us. How we live, according to Revelation, and the choices we make in loyalty determines where we worship. We can define people's worship by the choices they make and how they live in relation to Jesus Christ. The next lesson is this then. The pathway to victory in this holy war is to walk in the same footsteps as Jesus walked. The pathway to victory is the same. Look at chapter 1. Uh, actually, before we do that, yeah, don't, don't, don't turn anywhere yet. You can write those references down, though. When Jesus lived on this earth, how did he seek to gain victory over earthly enemies and defeat the devil? Much to the frustration of the disciples, it wasn't by taking up arms. It was by laying them down. The pathway to victory was to turn the other cheek, to live holy and peaceful lives in this earth, and to preach the word of God. Ultimately, though, victory would often be secured by one's death. This is the message of revelation to us. We are to follow in the same footsteps of Christ. 
Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Actually, actually verse 5. He says, starting, he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, so watch this, of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So he's a faithful witness. He's a ruler. But he, his ultimate pathway to victory was through the redemption of us on the cross by his blood. You turn now to chapter 6 and verse 9. Listen to this. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Again, look at the words there. It's because of the testimony which they had maintained and because of the word of God. So we are to follow in the same footsteps, which means that it might require a path of suffering, even to the point of martyrdom. But that is ultimately the pathway to freedom, or freedom in terms of victory. Beale once said it this way. He goes, even as the cross turned out to seal Christ's victory over Satan, so the present suffering of Christians seals their victory over the powers of darkness. And so, so far in North America, we've had a pretty easy life. But that's not the case of China. That's not the case of Iran. That's not the case of North Korea. That's not the case of recently, the month ago, of those in Afghanistan. And so we have to be prepared to walk the pathway that Jesus Christ walked. Oh, lesson number four. There's a promise of incredible eternal rewards for those who remain loyal to Jesus Christ. There's a promise of incredible eternal rewards. These are all found principally in Revelation 21 and 22. First of all, we get to be eternally present in God's arms. We get to be with them forever and be with Christ. There's an unhindered relationship. Right now, there's we don't experience the Lord to the same degree as we will in glory. But I love Revelation 21, verse 3. He says, He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. Another one, the second um, promise is that we'll receive a new heavens and a new earth, free from all suffering and pain. So a lot of you walked in here carrying disease. A lot of you walked in here carrying uh, emotional anguish from relationships you've encountered this week maybe some frustrations at work or with family. He says here in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. Revelation 21.4. That's hard to fathom what eternity is going to look like. Best will live. The best will live is probably 100 years old. You compare a hundred to eternity. <laughs> this is the thing. We have to persevere, church, because a hundred years of bliss on this world and getting everything we want and living a selfish life and maybe rejecting Christ is not worth eternity. It's not worth it. hundred years at best. Don't trade it in for eternity. That's the message of Revelation. He will be faithful. And finally... Despite, it's a long one, but work with me. 
Uh, despite what it looks and feels like as a believer living in our present circumstances, Jesus, and not Satan, or any governing authority, is ultimately the ruler of this world, and everything under is under his dominion. He's the ruler, and not the government. Everything's under his authority, not Satan's. When we read Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it was really powerful. It said right there in verse 5, or 1, 5, he says, He's the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. And then later on, it says in verse 6, To him be the glory and ever, for, because he has dominion. He has dominion. We'll finish with... Um, one more reading here in Revelation 22. John falls down to worship the angel at the conclusion of his visions and the message. He wants to fall down and he starts to, and he starts to worship. And in Revelation 22, verse 8, he says this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. And then he says this, worship God. Stand up. Don't worship me. Worship God. So who is God? Verse 12. <laughs> Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Stand up, John. Worship God. Who's that? I, Jesus. The focus of the book of Revelation is the second coming of the Lord and the de definite establishment of God's kingdom at the end of the time. Hence why we find ourselves repeatedly in Revelation at the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Chapters 1, chapter 6, chapters 14, chapters 19, chapters 20. To finish with a quote, Man by the name of De Silva, professor down in, uh, in, in the state, said this. The principal crisis facing humankind is the future encounter with a glorified Christ. Do you believe that, church? Do we believe that? I think we do at times, but that, this is what we have to, this is the mission of Okotoks for our church for Okotoks. This is the principal crisis facing humankind is when Jesus comes back, it's too late. It's too late. Those of us who've already received his forgiveness will get to reign with him for eternity. Those who haven't will not. This is the principal crisis facing Okotoks and the rest of the world. Hence why we want to be faithful witnesses right to the very end and persevere for him. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. And 
I know we've just scratched the surface of where we're going. But I pray, Lord, that you would give me the wisdom as the pastor here to understand what you're actually trying to convey so that I'm not misleading the people. At the same time, you give the people understanding through your spirit so that we can just have, we can strive towards unity in terms of what you're trying to convey to us. And we don't seek to learn this letter just so we are academically smart or because we, so we can look good in conversations around a Christian t- table of fellowship. We just actually want to know it so we know how to serve you and how to love you better and how to honor you with our lives. So we look forward to uh, our future together in this letter and the principles and truths you have to teach us. And may it transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.